give me a little bit about your your background, Bob. Just where you grew up and and how you ended up where you're at today. Um, I, I grew up in the Mahoney Valley, which is you know Youngstown's the best known place, but I'm in a small town, uh, Niles, Ohio, which is where William McKinley was born. And our most famous resident is the famous scholar activist Stoughton Land, who lives about a mile away. Uh, grew up. My dad was a, a union president. Uh, asked me local. So I grew up in a union family and and in that era, you know, I mean, my dad was probably, a, you know, an FDR liberal type, but but pretty militant, very open minded, went to college. Uh, my brother had gone to school, but I was the first one to go away, uh, found a Marxist philosophy professor and it was all over at that point. Um, got a, got my, you know, went to graduate school on history, studying U.S. foreign policy and, you know, and, and labor history as well. So if I think in that era, we were kind of the era after the new left, you know, when, you know, kind of all those radical intellectuals kind of really emerged in the 60s and 70s. And I was after that. And so I think most people in that era went into either labor or foreign policy, you know, to study empire, to st study class struggle, and which I think are both the same. You have to do both. Yeah. And from that point, that's kind of, you know, I started studying the Vietnam War. I think I told you, which is interesting. Um, my work is actually on, I call it dissent in the Vietnam War, but it's not groups like VVAW, which I actually know a good deal about. But what shocked me was that at the various highest levels, general officers, the Joint Chiefs of Staff and others um, thought Vietnam was a mistake and they were just ignored, which kind of turned me on more to the idea of who actually has power here. Because we, you know, people on the left would always talk about crazy generals and the military industrial complex. Well, it's the industrial part of that that I think really matters, the, the civilians and people like Wall Street people like that. Um, in the last several years, um, well, I met Scott about 20 years ago in Houston, and we actually started uh, something I think we're both very proud of. We started an anti-globalization group there, which was probably the best known, at, or definitely the best known at the time, maybe one of the biggest in, in the history of Houston left, um, you know, activist groups there working on, uh, you know, it was right after Seattle. So we're working on the, the WTO and NAFTA, and then like a lot of groups, we switched to do anti-war work after 9-1-1, which I think like a lot of groups became a, a real problem. And in the last several years, I'm, you know, kind of getting up in years, so I've been traveling more. And also I've, I, I spent a lot more time back in Ohio, which has changed quite a bit. It's, it's very different when I was growing up. Um, you know, like I said, my dad was a union president. He used to take me to these union breakfasts with Howard Metzenbaum and John Glenn and, and all of these labor leaders who at the time, you know, were, were good liberals, right? And now this area is overwhelmingly um, Trump, Trump area. Uh, you know, I understand in 2016, they despised the Clintons. No, no issue with that. But now it's, I think there's a lot of this kind of cultural Trump isn't here, you know, uh, let's support, you know, let's support blue lives matter flags. Uh, they're going to take our guns away. Uh, you know, a lot of that craziness. And so you have people who worked at Packard electric or Republic steel or the Lordstown plant, which just shut down made really good money, got a lot of overtime, got good pensions. They have uh, they have an F-150, they got a Harley, uh, they got a Trans Am, and, and uh, they're voting for like the most anti-union uh, people, you know, you've seen. So it's, it's, it's kind of the story of America, I guess, in many ways. And, you know, every four years, the media discovers Youngstown, and they all come down here, and they talk to people, and then nobody gives a shit the rest of the time, so. Yeah. That sounds where uh, it is. Yeah. That sounds pretty damn familiar, Bob. Yeah, that's yeah. very much like the area in which I'm located. Scott, how about yourself? Where did you grow up, and and how did you get into doing political work? Uh, I grew up in the suburbs of Dallas, Texas, a town called Garland, and uh, you know it's a pretty conservative place. At one point, I think my parents lived. It's after I'd moved away. Lived in like in the most conservative congressional district in the country. It was represented by a Vietnam vet actually named Sam Johnson uh, in the 80s and 90s. I, you know, went to college, got involved in like kind of a hippie anarchist environmental scene. So uh, gravitated towards politics, uh, went to grad school. And then after grad school, I actually got a job at a company in Houston and was, uh, 
it was like very much like that boring corporate cubicle sort of life. Uh, what's the, that you saw in like the movie Office Space or the or the comic strip Dilbert, you know, that sort yeah. of thing. And so I started taking, I had gotten a master's in history and started taking classes at uh, the University of Houston. And Bob was my professor and kind of caught a, a radical politics bug and then caught a, an organizing bug. I actually ended up dropping out of the taking graduate classes and we did, like Bob said, anti-corporate globalization work, which then morphed, you know, George Bush decided to start a couple of wars. And so that morphed into like an anti-war uh, organizing piece where in Houston, we targeted, um, Houston is like a hotbed of corporations, which were profiting off the war in Iraq. So we did a lot of like anti-corporate organizing, targeting companies like Halliburton, KBR, Kellogg, Brown and Root. Uh, and so I started doing a lot of political work there. Um, I actually left, I took a leave from my job and actually went and traveled abroad and traveled in Australia, did organizing there. The Australian government did not like that. And they uh, took away my visa and threw me in jail and then deported me. Uh, and when I came back, I decided I didn't want to go back to that sort of like office space sort of life. And so I, um, uh, started applying for jobs in the Bay Area. And now I'm the, I, I got a job at the Rainforest Action Network and was a climate campaigner there for many years. And I became the director of the organizing department there about three years ago. Can you tell me a little bit more about the organization? I've heard of it before, Scott, but I don't know much about it. Right. It's a, uh, a 60-person organization which campaigns inter- – this is my elevator wrap on the Rainforest Action Network – that campaigns internationally on – uh, tropical forests and climate uh, where uh, uh, unique and in, in as far as a lot of environmental nonprofits go and that we like target corporations where a lot of them do like work in the beltway, do a lot of work at like, you know, lobbying, et cetera. But we do more like an inside outside strategy pressuring companies to adopt more environmentally friendly policies. And so like the climate campaign that I worked on for uh, 12 years we targeted Wall Street banks to stop funding, you know, environmental and environmental bad actors like oil companies, coal companies. Uh, I take great pride in that I've moved a lot of banks away from particularly the, a lot of my work was around the coal sector. So took a lot of pride in that. Uh, on the, and then on the forest side, we do a lot of uh, pressuring, mostly like, like, um, uh, uh, products like food products that you get like palm oil in which comes from rainforest destruction paper products which comes from rainforest production that sort of thing what destruction is your, not production yeah yeah i was gonna i'm gonna jump back to you in a second bob but i'm wondering scott what you make of you know i think there's been some really interesting conversations i've had with environmental activists and organizers ranging from community organizers we have in Northwest Indiana who are on the front line sort of living in the industrial sort of light industrial areas. Even some of them remain heavy industrial areas all the way to like uh, more like radical activist types that Sergio and I met when we were at Standing Rock with other veterans and, you know, people from various organizations. I, I kind of wonder what you make of sort of where the environmental movement is today. In other words, we've had uh, many decades of environmental organizing. I have my own thoughts on, say, anti-war organizing because I spent a significant amount of time in that arena. But what do you right. think needs to change because we're not winning these the overall war? We're, we might be winning battles, but we are losing the war here. So, like, what do you think is some of the fundamental things that needs to need to change or we need to, like, amplify uh, in order to make the environmental movement and all of our movements, you know, if you want to touch on that, more successful? Yeah. I mean, I, I would say that I come from a sort of, I would come from an anti-capitalist perspective on this, which is not necessarily the the viewpoint of my, the organization in which I work for. But, you know, I actually feel like the environmental and climate movements need to like adopt a lot more of an anti-capitalist framework in their work. There's like, you know, we don't, we don't move legislation in Congress, for example, because like Exxon and the coal companies and to be honest, the banks like own Congress. And so we need to kind of, we need to sort out a strategy that like disempowers and di- diminishes the, the, the ability of those monoliths or not, excuse me, those, those mega companies, they're not monoliths, uh, mega companies to be able to just control everything. And, and like, 
I mean, I, the environmental movement doesn't even really have that analysis or framework, in my opinion. Like my circle does, and like a bunch of like eco anarchists do. But like, I think, I, I think there needs to be a whole lot more of like coming to grips with like these companies like basically own us, and we may be stopping pipelines. Like you know, Biden, you know, rolled back the decision on Keystone. And there's a lot of movement on Dakota Access Pipeline right now. And there's a big fight going on in northern Minnesota around Line 3, which we're actually a big part of. But, but like, you know, those are like small little symptoms in a, in a greater disease. And to me, the disease is capitalism. So, Do you think that part of it is you have, um, and, I, and I'm sorry, I'll jump to you in a sec, Bob. But did, do you think that oh, part hurry. of it is the... <laughs> I, I wonder, in other words, what the environmental... So you have, like, today, you've got environmental groups like... I'm not interested in, say, the Sierra Club or some others who've come into our area and have had some really bad practices. Um, yeah, I can imagine. But um, uh, there are others, though. I think we've met other environmentalists who have had some success, I think, uh, in working with various members of Congress, say, to, like, craft the Green New Deal and to start this conversation about legislation like that. How much, like, how do you think we, the environmental movement could better sort of use the inside-outside strategy of like, yes, I mean, I think most people who would consider themselves progressive or left understand that Congress is owned largely by corporations and banks, um, but also understanding that like, you know, well, at least we under we sort of operate with the assumption that we need massive state intervention as well. So there's, so in other words, there's sort of like, to me, limitations of both perspectives you know like if you're spending all of your time in washington dc lobbying hoping that we're going to eventually get this thing passed with the current base that we have of people who are organized in the u.s which is a small number of people who are organized we're not going to get very far um right. but it also seems clear to me that if we don't sort of pressure the state to take uh massive action as well that we're going to be stuck in a, in a in a bad cycle yeah i mean i yeah i, I don't even i I think um, I think it takes it, it's 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 a holistic fight, right? And so we need to come at it from a bunch of different perspectives. I, I worked for a long time on a campaign fighting mountaintop removal coal mining in Central Appalachia, and you know we we did a lot like that that practice still exists, but we also you know did a lot to stop a lot of issuing of new permits by the government. And part of it is that the coal industry was on on life support, but like we went at you know the 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 bigger anti coal anti mountaintop removal movement went at it from like a, a legal there was a legal front where we like sued these coal companies where we sued the you know Department of Environmental Protection in West Virginia which is not really a, doesn't do any environmental protection, uh, but like there was like a there was a legal strategy there was a regulatory strategy where people were in regulatory committees and meetings all the time, either like, you know, fighting it at that sort of like, they called it paper riching. And so they would do all this like paperwork to like really sort of challenge it so that the, the coal companies didn't get like a free pass. Uh, there was like on the ground, frontline direct action. There were tree sits. There were people who would go onto mine sites and chain themselves to, to bulldozers. Uh, and, and through that work, I, that's when I was working for Rainforest Action Network. And so we trained, challenged the banks. We did ran pressure campaigns on Citibank and on Bank of America and JP Morgan Chase to get them to move away from some of the coal companies anyway. And so like, I feel like there's going to be a, there's a holistic sort of response that we need that, except we need that at like a much larger scale. Like, I think that's one of the things that's lacking in the environmental and climate movements is like things are not being met at scale. We talk about it. And I think there's a lot of really good rhetoric about it. And I think the the current new president of the United States realizes that too. But then to fight it at the scale we have to do is we have to really look at how to dislodge the power of the Exxons and Chevrons and and honestly the banking sector too. And so I don't really have an answer in how to address that, but I do feel like we need to be going at it at a whole bunch of different fronts with a whole lot more people at a larger scale than we ever have before. Cause it's, you know, pandemic has been this horrible crisis and it's right in people's faces. The economic crisis is a horrible crisis right in everybody's face. Climate is even like potentially worse than both of those. And that's going to like a long-term grind of destruction. Yeah. Yeah. I agree. What is your, what, what sort of relationship do you usually have with workers in these campaigns? Um, I, with our corporate campaigns, we have partnered with labor 
when there is like crossover, um, like say there's a, there's a, especially with the bank campaign, like, so, you know, the same banks that are like uh, trying to, that are funding companies that are breaking unions, the same banks, which are like building coal, coal plants and in the South side of Chicago or supporting the South side of Chicago. And so like, when we're able to find like a kind of like common ground, and we're able to partner with, we're able to partner with labor, uh, a big, when our Bank of America campaign, this was many years ago, was like huge. Um, and pretty much all of the different sort of activist political sectors were targeting Bank of America. We did a lot of like collaboration with like unions like SEIU, et cetera. Um, I, I'll say that, and some environmental groups are better on this than others. I would say that generally though, that the environmental movement needs to do a lot better to bring in unions and to bring labor into like this movement. Um, and there's, there's great work being done by groups like the labor network for sustainability to like kind of find that common ground. But, but like, if we're going to win on climate, we really need to have like a, a much better strategy and a much better collaboration with like the labor movement globally too, not just in the U S although yeah. the U S is like definitely a big part of the problem. Yeah. No, that's a great, and point. the, and the, and don't get me wrong, the institutions on the labor side are not, you know, the best either. They're a big part of the problem as well. Oh yeah. <laughs> it's not just the yeah. corporate CEOs and the heads of the big environmental groups are a problem. So are the union bosses. So yeah, they are. Bob and I, I mean, talk about that a lot on our show. Yeah. Yeah. No, no, no. I just try, I try to make sure it's tough here because we have a terrible business unionism and we do have top down sort of really corporate union leadership at, at a certain level, but we have to be very sort of clear here that unions are better than corporations no matter who's in charge of them because like we live in this area where like unions are consistently demonized so like for me it's my, like it's not even you know what i mean like i always add that caveat oh yeah. whenever i talk about how how shitty they may be in certain contexts well, one thing one thing i'll say as an example of like where that it's like pro a problem with unions is that my understanding is in the green new deals there's not one mention of fossil fuels mm -hmm. and and that's labor's influence on the green new deal and, and labor and, and big greens kind of going along with that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, labor unions aren't organized. I mean, this is the issue. I mean, so yeah. I don't expect that their current leadership is going to have a position on that. And as far as the yeah. Green New Deal is concerned, I also think... No, they do, they do have a position on it. They don't want to talk about fossil fuels because fossil fuels, things like pipelines are jobs. Yeah, yeah. And, that the, and the building trades have a lot of influence over, over that in the AFL, for example. Sure, sure. Yeah. No, I, I agree with you. I don't think there'll be much movement there unless we can get unions on board. But they obviously have to be organized internally as well. And people from the outside can't do that. So that's definitely a union issue. Yeah. And labor networks for sustainability sustainability does a lot of work in like connecting with like people at the local at the locals level. Right on. Yeah, I wrote it down. I'm gonna check them out as soon as we get off. Thank you for that. Yeah. Bob, how about you? I wanna ask you more about like broader question about where you see sort of the left in general today to the extent that one exists in the United States? Like what is your sort of post-election, uh, post-January 6th uh, analysis of where, where we go from here? And uh, if you see anything positive happening, uh, please point us to it. Yeah, I, I do. Um, you know, let me point out too, I, which I didn't say earlier, um, I did work with Scott, you know, in the early 2000s, but I, I'm a prof my main role is I'm a professor. And so I've studied and, and researched and I teach classes about, you know, the history of protest and class struggle. And I've done a, a ton of public speaking. So, um, I mean, Scott's on the front lines. He's doing the dirty work. And I'm, you know, kind of one of these armchair <laughs> theorists in, in, in that regard. But I think we, uh, the one thing that's really a common theme in the, in the podcast, actually, the reason we started it was because we wanted to focus on organizing and not just armchair theorizing. And if you listen to us, you'll hear all kinds of snarky comments about various like New York left publications and things like that, who are just like, you know, churning out articles about this is what you have to do. But, you know, I've always said like, I wish they would come down and hang out in Youngstown and Warren and go to the bars with me and let's see how, you know, how that, that they'd handle that. Um, <laughs> as far as the left goes, I mean, this is something I've studied for a long time and I think I've been part of it in, in various ways. Um, you know, I thought this summer was inspiring. I mean, I thought seeing 20 million, 30 million, who knows, you know, people go into the streets in many ways spontaneously or organized in non-traditional ways was really 
quite remarkable. And, you know, it, 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 you know, the, the, this has been building up for a long time. And so I think the kind of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor situation sparked it, but clearly, you know, there are people who have been angry and who've been living in precarity for so long. And especially since the, the 2008 crash. Right. And I think this finally lit the spark. And, and so that part I thought was inspiring to see people go out there really bright with the level of moral courage was, was unbelievable. Um, and then, of course, but we also saw the co-optation take place pretty much immediately, right? Where, um, you know, one of the things we do on on the podcast a lot, which I think is pretty popular, is one thing I've always studied, like most people who study protests study it from the bottom up, and that's how I was trained. But I actually tend to enjoy looking at it from the top down, and I study the ruling class a lot more. And what struck me was that um, Wall Street, and the uh, National Association of Manufacturers and the Chamber of Commerce and a bunch of these, like the, the barons of the grueling class actually did more to challenge Trump than like the AFL-CIO did. And that part was difficult. You know, I mean, you, you had these companies and a lot of it was performative, you know, Black Lives Matter banners and Jamie Dimon taking a knee and things like that. So that's a long way winded way of saying, I think that the ruling class understands that there's something going on, you know, that, that that people are upset that there is a movement here and that, you know, they're they're going to try to stay on top of it as much as possible, which is why I think uh, they made it clear they didn't want Trump reelected uh, when he was pulling off all this stuff. They actually stood in the way more than than labor did, really. And so I think that there's some sense I wouldn't call it fear, but there's some sense that there are openings. And that I think is 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 a is somewhat encouraging that you know we are now in these mis, you know immense crises right, the healthcare system has failed. There's, that's not even questionable. You can't talk. You can't even question that. I mean the economy's failed. You really can't question that. The political system, obviously, right? We have right wing violence. We have climate change. I mean the JCS publicly denounced the president. I mean you know you know a good deal about that, and that's something I've studied. That's utterly extraordinary. You know, so we're living in, I think there are these openings where you can get away with stuff now. So actually, I mean, in that regard, I'm hopeful. I also know the ruling class has immense levels of power, violence, which we saw this summer. They can go to the courts, um, the media, you know, uh, co-optation through the Democratic Party and through unions and things like that. But um, I don't know. I mean, you know, I I remember in the Reagan years saying, oh, my God, it can't get worse than this, (laughs) you know. Uh, yeah. Um, I think, you know, I think Scott, I, I would say the same thing Scott would say, we need, you know, organization. Um, we need, you know, kind of at the, at the grassroots level, like what we're have, what we're seeing in Alabama right now. I mean, by all accounts, that's employee driven, that movement to, to organize Amazon workers in, in Alabama. I mean, that's not the AFL-CIO coming down there and doing it, thankfully, actually, you know, and we saw like the a couple of years ago, the red state teacher strikes, which tended to be pretty spontaneous. A lot of the uh, Black Lives Matter movement uh, last year were pretty spontaneous. So, you know, people are, I think, not just, you know, kind of fed up with everything, but I think they also understand now that there's no Superman coming to save them. And so they're starting to do a lot more, you know, kind of action on, on their own. And I mean, Scott sees this on a daily basis. You know, I'm kind of more more of an observer of it. Um, I mean, historically, you know, I mean, everybody likes to talk about the sixties, but, um, you know, in the, in the aftermath of the 1960s, we got Richard Nixon and Ronald Reagan. So who knows, you know, um, Trumpism definitely needs to be beaten back. I mean, I, I'm not an electoral guy and I don't know if we want to talk about that later. Cause I have very strong feelings about the emphasis and focus on elections, but, uh, I voted last time and I encourage people to vote for Biden. And that's the first time I voted since I voted for Jesse Jackson a long time ago. Uh, so um, I think the 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 Trump was was a danger and had to be eliminated. And I don't think I don't understand to me at least why the left doesn't get that. Like you can say there's one party with two right wings, and I've said that a million times, but that doesn't mean they're exactly the same. And I do think Trump had to go, and I'm glad he's gone. And yeah. I think you know I think. I would, you know, Scott and I talk a lot, a lot about that. I think activists are more likely to say that than kind of 
lefty intellectual professor types who are, you know, more radical than everybody else. So, yeah, I, w- I would agree with you. No, we could jump straight into that. What I mean, what do you, what do you think uh, moving forward here? So, in other words. I, too, have been longtime activist and organizer, got involved in 2006 when we came back from the Marine Corps, joined the anti-war movement, and was off and running since then. You know, different environmental campaigns, uh, labor campaigns, regional organizing, Standing Rock, have traveled abroad and worked with different international movements. And, like, all of that combined now, the last 15 years, Occupy, all the rest, Black Lives Matter, even this summer. I mean, for some of us, in other words, I was excited, Bob, but I was also like, eh, I know where this is going to lead. This is going to lead back to people going home because no one's organized in between these uprisings, um, which is the same thing we saw when we got to Ferguson. We went with a crew of folks from Gary, Indiana. It was like a local organizing body. It wasn't Black Lives Matter yet. It was like after they got back from Ferguson, then they officially started their Black Lives Matter chapter in Gary. But we went down there with a crew of people and as soon as we got down there, it reminded me a lot of Northwest Indiana, not only the landscape and like the, you know, socio-political atmosphere of the whole thing. It was just the same thing. It was liquor stores, barber shops, burnt down buildings and fucked up housing complexes, which looks just like anywhere else in the region. Um, but, you know, we were talking to cats who were down there and they're just like, you know, what organization are you a part of? Who are you organizing? Like there was hardly anything, you know, so it was it was a it reminded me a lot of the many, many mobilizations we've been to over the years, including something like Standing Rock. When, you know, Sergio and I got there, we were there with a contingent of veterans and we just kept talking with people and we were like, hey, what are you guys going home to? And they were like, what do you mean? Like, I'm off to the next mobilization. I'm off to the next big event. And we're just like, y'all ain't organizing. Like, y'all are bouncing around from one event to the next, like from one mobilization to the next. And then when I start to see the same faces, uh, at Standing Rock, as you see at Occupy, as you see in Wisconsin, as you see at any other major, major mobilization in the country, you go, wait a minute, man. Like, we're only operating with the people that we know. You know, we're not broadening the sort of base of supporters that we have. So it's like, I guess today I'm wondering how we can do all of the above, knowing that we have limited time, limited capacity, and like what, to me, the most important questions are like, what are the kinds of campaigns or issues that could help us build a broad base of people so we could build real political power and getting to that. Like we don't talk about, I don't think enough uh, power on the left or sort of what we mean when we're talking about organizing, you know, so who has power, what is power? How do you wield it? That to me seems like one of the most important questions that we our, should our be last asking. podcast Are was, we afraid was of on it? that. Oh, that's right on pod, our last podcast. We haven't released it yet, but that's the whole thing is about that. But and Scott can handle this. The, the one thing I do want to say, and I've been saying this for years and I have no solution to it, is the right has like these kind of organic organizations, churches, gun clubs, um, you know, I don't know, fantasy sports leagues, things like that. Right. And I don't know that we have anything like that. Like, I, I really actually want to hear you talk because anti-war soldiers to me should be embraced and 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 in every way encouraged like i think that's one group that i think is really critical and and you know i mean i've you know this is the 50th anniversary of uh dewey canyon three and the winter soldier uh, hearings just had their 50th anniversary and and that terrified the government that was like vbaw scared the hell out of the government and as organizers you guys i think because of your military background and for various reasons know what you're doing you know um (laughs) So that's that's a potential there, right? But for the most part, I mean, we don't have evangelical churches. We don't have the NRA. We don't have gun clubs. We don't have, you know, I mean, uh, when I start conversations on the left, and and thankfully it's becoming easier, but for years I've tried to talk to people about sports or some element of popular culture because, you know, like I, I've talked to vets before, and I'll start by talking about football or something just goofy outside yeah, yeah. of it. Yeah. And then you work your way into it. Well, a lot of people on the left – you know, would be yeah, appalled yeah. by that, right? <laughs> so I think, and 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 then I'll, you know, I, I've said, but but I think we have to figure out some way to create these kind of, I just keep calling them organic. I mean, if you're creating them, they're not organic, but I think you get my point, right? There are these organic communities, I think, that the right has, which are, you know, and you've seen that, right? The churches, and now they have QAnon, and they have, you know, crazy shit like that. And, you know, I don't want, like, well, I don't want to say I don't want to have a left Proud Boys. I don't want you know, I mean, having that kind of an organization actually wouldn't necessarily be the worst thing in the world, right? 
with on the on the side of light but um i don't know i don't know how to do that but i do know that that i think has been a, a major problem for a long time now that we just don't have these kind of i don't want to call them plug and play but we don't have these organizations or these institutions these kind of even cultures other than you know the unitarians or whatever and you know maybe other and that's why i think like any more vets to me would be so crucial if if more people on the left would kind of come around to that and that's why like last summer when the when the um the at like the nba you know and a lot of people were mocking i mean they didn't do enough and i think it's great yeah i mean i was i'm a big yep. hoops junkie and 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 i still you know the nba is like a seminar in african-american history and you're not going to get that you know so I, i'm okay with that but I think you guys can speak to that much better than I can. But. Go ahead. Go ahead, Scott. Yeah. Um, I mean, I, I think, I mean, I, I think a bunch of different things. I you like looking at like from the kind of like 30,000 feet is, and, and a lot of stuff that like Bob and I, that Bob just talked about and that we talk about on the show is, you know, ruling class, you know, cracks in this, in the ruling class, you know, J.P. Morgan Chase and the National Association of Manufacturers coming out against Trump, you know, that sort of thing. And I think the other important counterweight that we saw to the state and state violence when Trump, when Trump was particularly when Trump was in office was, you know, this like sort of like thunder on the left. And so we, and we saw that really loud in, you know, starting in the summer. Um, we have we have a lot of com I have a lot of comrades on the on the ground in places like Portland and Seattle who are like really out there confronting both like you know the the federal government, those secret militia task force or whatever, and then also the right, and 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 I and I think it's one thing to sort of go out there and mix it up, um, and I'm not opposed to that. I totally support all of that, um, but I but I, I but I also think that um, I, I think that's only for like a certain you know, probably small little kind of like slice of the, of the left and the, and the, and like you said, like, um, there were, you know, talking about Standing Rock and Ferguson and, you know, and in, in a, a lot, like I'm a veteran of the anti-corporate globalization movement. And then I saw this a few years after that around anti-war rallies and around like, you know, backcountry environmental protests is that like, it is like a traveling, they, in Appalachia, they actually used to call it the traveling horde. And it was like, you know, activists from the Pacific Northwest and DC and New York who would go and they would stay for months, sometimes even years. And some of them, some of them are good friends of mine who've like ended up living there and doing organizing, you know, after the sort of like kind of sexy direct action pieces like moved on. But like, we actually need that everywhere. Like, you know, hearing you talk about like organizing in, in like Indiana or often hearing Bob talk about like Northeast Ohio is like, those are places are being decimated by the economy, by the pandemic, things like that. And like, you know, having organizations on the ground, having people with energy and motivation and momentum who are like kind of driving things that are, you know, not working for, uh, you know, a company or in my opinion, a church or, or a local government is really important. And I, and I feel like, you know, you can find that in San Francisco and you can find that in DC and in other, you know, sort of like, blue zip codes like that but we're not seeing that in the part of the world where it's actually really going to be more important as we as we keep going right it's not happening in rural america it's not happening in the rust belt i mean i i spent part of last summer kind of traveling around just like uh, eastern california east of the sierras which is actually not too dissimilar from where i grew up in texas and like there's no organizing going on there there's very little organizing going on there and like that's where it's really going to be most important so my question is, because I, I agree with you, I'm, I'm not sure if I agree that it's most important or equally as important, because in other words, when I go to L.A., I don't see a Los Angeles that's organized. I see a ton of immigrant laborers who are basically mowing people's grasses and cleaning people's houses and a shitload of like Mercedes Benzes and Bentleys rolling down West Hollywood and Santa Monica on the way to Venice so they can pack into a $7,000 a month apartment. So like... To me, the, the so-called blue areas like a San Francisco or an Oakland that's quickly becoming gentrified as well, like they ain't that great either. And they got a ton of people who live there who like also need a shitload of help. And it's mostly like underclass, like people who are working all of these service sector jobs and servicing the professional class people who actually can afford to live there. So like for me, when I go to a place like a major city, 
it ain't that much different. Like, it's true that organizing in Michigan City is different than organizing in Chicago. In Chicago, you have a lot more networks. Like, there's immigrant rights networks. There's mosques. There's synagogues that are organized, et cetera. But Chicago is still totally fucked. Chicago is run by a neoliberal piece of shit mayor. The unions in Chicago outside of CTU and a few others aren't that great. And most of the city councilmen are neoliberals or leftovers from the daily years. So, like, that's like the lib- that's like the good like third largest and San Francisco's like that too. Yeah. That's what I'm saying though. Like I, so in other words, I'm not disagreeing with you, Scott. It's just that like, Uh I agree that we have to organize in these places like where Bob and I live, but we also are looking to areas, you know, people here will look to a Chicago and they'll be like, Hey, well, what's going on up there? And it's like, ah, we've had some victories, but Chicago's still a mess as well. So I don't know if I, you know what I mean? In terms of like weighing out, which is more important. I mean, ironically, Oh, I'm sorry. I mean, I I think that's fair. I, I, I do feel like the, like a lot of my family lives in like red counties in, in Texas and, and and some of my family lives in blue counties in Texas or purple counties. And the, I mean, the difference between here is like, I, I still feel like fighting a neoliberal Democrat is like way better than fighting like some Trump Republican sure. sheriff in rural Texas. Yeah. Um, you know, who, you know, thinks the election, like whatever, I don't love Biden either, but like, that didn't even think the election was for real, you know. Right, so right, right, yeah. I mean, that's the that's I- the just that's the difference in my in my head, and and I think the the thread that runs through a lot of these like left and organizing circles is like kind of like to take it back is like is around power, and I think one people don't know how to don't totally understand how to build power. I feel like there is a certain fear of power on the left. Like when we when we do win, it always feels like short lived. We tear down those who have won something, um, and and so there's like there's a, like there's a whole culture that is like tries to avoid power, yeah. and and like I, I don't think it comes like you know and there's like a a sort of like you know anti-authoritarian left, which definitely has like disdain for you know uh, the current system, whether it's political system or economic system. But like, it doesn't mean that we can't build power within it. And I, and I don't see the anti-authoritarian left within the U.S. doing that. I see that happening in other countries. I just don't feel like I see that in the U.S. And yeah, I think I mean, some of it's fear. I think there's a culture of fear around it. Those that, are all great the, uh, points. We, we've, done, yeah. we've done a lot of stuff on this, but the last show in particular, like I said. But, um, and, and I think there were two, two elements to the, to the bigger theme. And I've written about this recently, too. I have a blog called afflictacomfortable.org. Uh, but one is that I think the left created and, and attributed to Trump kind of superpower that he never had. And they never understood that, you know, he's a dangerous, harmful, detestable guy, but he never had wide approval. And the only thing he ever got done was basically a tax cut because he took care of Wall Street and deregulation. Mitch McConnell kind of took care of everything else. And when people confronted him, he really kind of was stopped in his tracks. The military publicly rebuked him. Wall Street publicly rebuked him. But the left was so obsessed with his tweets and the crazy shit he said and the bluster and the threats that they couldn't look beyond that. They don't they don't know who power is. It's kind of like the Wizard of Oz. And I've spent much of my life, and especially the last four years, saying Trump isn't power. Power is Jamie Dimon. Power is Goldman Sachs. Power is, you know, all of these corporations. And they're... They're going to go along with Trump for the ride as long as they're going to get a, a mega tax cut and they'll get crazy judges. And after that, they didn't care. And they did. They cut him loose. And and yet the left created this monster and then spent all of this time living in the, the deepest anxiety and fear. I mean, one of my issues that I've written about extensively and gotten into some good pissing matches about was um the whole Donald Trump is a fascist. We're living in Nazi Germany. He's another Hitler. And, you know, maybe it's because I'm a professor of history, but that's maddening to me. I mean, you know, I'm not going to sit here and defend America and get the flag out, but it's different. It's historically different and it's politically different. And to simply say this guy is Hitler and we're living in Nazi Germany is not a way to organize. Fear and anxiety lead to paralysis, not to organization. So that would be like, that's always the the, the biggest thing that Scott and I have talked about a lot. And actually, our, probably our most popular shows too, I think. We actually get the, the most... The big, the most hits and the most feedback from those. So I think the left doesn't understand that they don't, and they don't know how to use it. They don't know what they have. I mean, they they can do things. I mean, there really is, you know, like there's a lot more of us than there are them. And you know, ninety ten percent uh, uh, of Americans have ninety three percent of the stock of stock shares. 
the top 1% has 53%. The top 10% has, what is it, 84% of wealth now. The mean uh, wealth in the United States, the median wealth in the United States is $30,000. Yeah. You, you can't live on that. That's insane. You know, so there are people who are well aware of the material conditions of life. And I think the left has done a really big disservice to them by not, you know, kind of going further and saying, hey, you, you guys can do more with this. You know, you can, it's more than vote blue, no matter who. You can do that if you want. But like, even now, I think I'm seeing, you know, I, I had real issues, for instance, with the Sanders campaign, not Bernie Sanders is a good guy. As good as you're going to get in the United States, the squad's as good as you're going to get in the United States. But, you know, based on, especially like, like Jacobin and these New York lefties, Americans gave Bernie Sanders $180 million. And they spent, I, who knows how many gazillions of work hours and energy. He was never going to be the nominee. I mean, it was very clear in 2016 that the Republicans hated Trump as much as the Democrats hated Sanders, but they accepted him, whereas the Democrats wouldn't accept Sanders. So you're on this Quixotic quest. I mean, I'm a broken record on this with Sanders when it was never going to happen. And, you know, every time we've had an organizer on our show, and we've had a lot, one of the questions I'll ask is, um, if somebody gave you one-tenth of that, $18 million, what could you do with it? And their eyes light up. And now I think we're seeing the flip of that, which is people on the far left since January 21st, have been talking about how shitty Biden is. It's like, he is who he is. He's been around for 50 years. I mean, he's not going to stand up there and say, burn, baby, burn, you know, all power to the Soviet. That's not who he is. Yeah. So the more you bitch, you know, the more you touted Sanders, the more you bitch about Biden, you're essentially buying into the same idea that elections are the only thing we can do, sure. you know, and that's what we got to do. We got to spend money on elections. We got to go to the midterms and we got to do this and we need to elect this. I mean, believe me, I'm as, uh, when those two senators from Georgia were elected, I was elated, man. I broke out of Scott. I broke out the scotch, the good stuff, you know, but that's not, I mean, in America, I think the American left, when you hear politics, you think elections. I mean, that's a tactic. There's all kinds of politics. Everything we do is politics. So my rant, which, you know, our listeners have heard a million times, but I think it's important. Trump did not exercise effective power, and the left turned him into a super monster. And because of that, I think they were afraid. There was anxiety. There was panic and ultimately paralysis. And I don't think people understand that they can get shit done if they want to, you know, it's, it's corny, but the people united, you know, won't be defeated. So. What kind of institution, this could go, I'll start with you, Bob, and then we could jump over to Scott, yeah. but what kind of institutions do you think the left needs to build? In other words, if we're looking back at history and we think about the kinds of institutions and organizations that existed when the left uh, gained significant victories, uh, what do those kind of organizations and institutions look like today, do you think? Today? Yeah. I, I mean, I was just going to say a left, a real left, you know, like Wobblies and this, the early CIO and, you know, stuff like that. Uh, Scott can, can answer this, but I think that Scott works with people who are doing that. Um, I mean, you know, I'm old school. I'm a, I'm a kind of a reductionist, you know, kind of old, old fashioned kind of Marxist labor guy. So I would love to see an effective and powerful union movement, but uh, that's not imminent. So I, I don't, I don't sure. know. I think, I think, I think Scott is, is much better in, in a much better place to talk about this since he's seeing it and living it. Whereas I'm kind of dealing with it in a, in a very peripheral and indirect way. Yeah. So what kind of organizations are popping up in the Bay area? Or the what pressure's kind of on you now. <laughs> yeah. What kind of organizations, uh, and it doesn't have to just be in the barrier, Scott, if you know of folks or efforts throughout the States, here we'll focus on the U.S. Please tell us, but I, yeah, I'm kind of wondering what kind of institutions. I agree with Bob, rebuilding the labor movement or a new labor movement. Um, you know, maybe focused on service sector workers, teachers, nurses, et cetera. Like that, to me, seems like a a positive step forward or something that we should be focusing on. But also, universities haven't been organized. We have so on and so forth. But yeah, from your view on the ground where you live, what what kind of organizations are active? Who's actually getting stuff done in the Bay Area? Yeah, I mean, I, 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 I don't know if any of these answers are going to be a surprise, like institutionally, but to input institutionally, like, you know, definitely like labor, um, unions, um, definitely like, you know, Democrat, like dem democracy, little d democracy at the, at the local le locals level, you know, the official locals level, I, I think is important. Uh, the other one 
that we see, I see a lot in the Bay Area and I see a lot kind of like in my my radar of what's organizing going on in the world. I actually feel like there's a lot of mutual aid organizations out there which are which are doing good work, you know, and it's everything from, you know, delivering food to elders to helping people fight eviction to, um, you know, feeding the homeless. You know, there's a lot of like organizations which may not be organizations in a year from now, may not be around, but like all of those have really popped up in the last year around the pandemic. Um, I think those are important. Um, and then like, I'm, you know, I'm a, I'm a bit of an old school anarchist. And so like, I've, I've been seeing a lot of like, sort of like, even though they may not even call themselves that, but like anarchist configurations, which are involved in like direct action campaigns to stop things like pipelines. There's a whole lot of that going on around like the line three pipeline in Northern Minnesota right now. Um, you know, I, I, I do think that to go back to what I said a little while ago about climate though, is like, my question is whether we're going to really reach a scale in which we can challenge any of these crises, but like, but like particularly climate change. And so like what, how, how, how what organization, my question is, and I don't have the answer to this is like, what, how, what, what institutions or organizations do we need to build to really be able to sort of like counter that and, and sway the state. So there is a state intervention, like you were talking about before around the, the climate issue in particular. I mean, I, I feel like in some ways we're just like, moving things at a very like lower level with this stuff. And, and, and we need to like figure out how to like think bigger and better. And, and, and I'm, you know, I'm definitely not a advocate of like doing this in a top down way. So how do we do it with like some sort of level of like little D democracy? Yeah. No, I think it's a major question. In other words, we talk to organizers all the time. We have people who are doing amazing work within unions. Sometimes it's very limited. Sometimes say in the case of the CTU in Chicago, started out as a great reform movement that also then sort of catapulted Chuy Garcia into a, uh, what was almost a successful mayoral race against Rahm Emanuel, which then led to like five or six city councilmen getting elected on a, uh, I think, openly socialist platform. So there's like, five, I think, five or six DSA members now who are members of uh, city council in Chicago. And these are all people of color, and they're also from like no shit, like, Mexican immigrant communities, like other like Hispanic, Latino communities, black communities, like really good places. Now, I know that that's not the case for every DSA chapter everywhere and that there's a lot of internal contradictions depending on where they are. And I also don't necessarily think that like the DSA model is, is say, the only model. But what I'm interested in these days more than anything have basically been, um, and I'm sure you understand this, Scott, and I'm sure you do too, Bob, because you guys are older than I am. But yeah, after a while, like my interest these days is working with people who are getting things done. So in other words, we have like anarchist groups in our region who are like, you know, sort of act like they're holier than thou. And they're like, we're the ones who do the like radical actions. And we're like, yeah, and you still have the same fucking 15 people that you were hanging out with 15 years ago. And like, you know, so like, so, the, and you know what I mean? Like talking down on like a group that might like get like a couple progressives elected who then did a program of affordable housing in the community. And it's like, Hey man, like, and so for me, again, it's like, I want to be able to see all of this happen at once. We've seen some of the affinity groups in our area, including the groups that we've been a part of here in Michigan City. We've been very effective at stopping gentrification projects. We've been very effective at stopping environmentally destructive projects. We have not been as effective in building. And I think part of what has drawn people into like the DSA umbrella, which we have like a lot of people here regionally who've started to join the chapter that we're starting and one of the reasons we're starting a chapter just to back up um, is because after doing four years of intense deep organizing work here solely focused in Michigan City Indiana and working with the existing regional partners that we had our hope was that in other cities throughout the region like in Gary or Hammond or Lake Station or these other places that are like within a 50 mile drive of us that like we'd also see some like organic action pop up and that's not what happened you know people were active their groups went away people would pop up for this thing they would slide away and after four years the organization that we had helped build here in Michigan City was like one of the last standing organizations that started when Trump was elected and then maintained after Trump, you know, was elected out of, or uh, Joe Biden was elected and Trump was kicked out of office. And with DSA, it allows us not only to bring all these folks under an umbrella and give us some kind of ideological coherency, um, but then also it allows us to connect with other people because part of the other problem we saw here in a place like Northwest Indiana was people were doing good work, 
but they were getting bogged down with like, I'm here in my region and we're dealing with this issue and, you know, not connected to other organizers and activists and efforts throughout the country. DSA also offers that sort of nation, you know, national network that I think has really helped the people who are in our chapter now because they're able to connect with people all over the country, you know, and like kind of pick and choose like, hey, which chapters have something to offer, which people have organized successfully with tenants, which or people have organized successfully with students, which people have organized successfully at the workplace. What could we take and pull from each of these that makes sense where we live in our context? So just I don't want to ramble too long, but just to give you an idea of like, that's kind of what our thinking was here where we where we're set up today, you know, and like why we would join an organization like that and why we would, you know, contribute to helping build it. I studied, I teach courses in the 1960s and I've written about it. And, and that point you just brought up is important because that's what you actually had. You had groups like SNCC, which was Southern, but that was everywhere. You had SDS, which, you know, campuses all over the country had SDS chapters. VVAW, there were VVAW chapters all over the country, uh, Black Panther Party, you know, granted it was strongest in places like Chicago and Oakland, but there were Black Panthers all over. And and that's important to have that kind of commonality there, right? And especially today, you know, that was before social media and internets and things like that, where you actually had to like, you know, communicate with people in a much different <laughs> and, and direct way, right? Um, so I know, I, I think you're absolutely right. And one thing, and, and again, I Scott knows this much better than me, but one thing, another part, because I said, I do have some hope um, to see um, like nurses and teachers, Overwhelmingly women in these in these um, unions too um, gave me hope too because they were badass. I mean, they didn't back down and they're, you know, the, the stuff they're taking on COVID, um, you know, red state teacher strikes. So, you know, there are people out there who kind of get it. And I mean, I've often thought that, you know, the bigger problem isn't even the crazy oligarchs and Trump and the right wing. It's it's Nancy Pelosi and, and Chuck Schumer and the, uh, union presidents you know that's the first barrier you have to get through before you can get to trump and the oligarchs and all of them and you know they'll do whatever they can to co-op you and commodify you and and so i have no i mean and i know that that's part of that whole kind of the squad and bernie sanders idea about getting into the party but you know out of 535 members of congress there are what like six and and their own party it's kind of ironic right you have this crazy woman from georgia i keep forgetting her name who's kind of been embraced by the GOP, whereas Marjorie Pelosi, Taylor Green, Marjorie Taylor Green, whereas Pelosi, you know, really has no regard for the squad, which is a legitimate political movement instead of this insane QAnon tantric sex guru woman now, you know? Yeah. Uh, uh, but so, I mean, they're willing to go as far out as possible. Steve King sure. and Cruz and Holly and all that. And, you know, the Democratic Party is essentially a party of like, if, if you're old enough to remember people like Dick Gephardt, you know, or uh, Mike Dukakis. That's that's the left that the Democrats are comfortable with, right? Uh, not AOC and not Sanders, who represent, and that's the other part of this, they represent the majority opinion on pretty much every, Trump did not have a majority on any issue. If you look at any issue, healthcare, gun violence, uh, abortion rights, you name it, Trump did not have a majority on any of those issues, whereas people like Sanders and the squad do, and the Democratic, so that's why I think electoralism and electoral politics. I mean, I mean, getting rid of Trump's great. And I think it gives people more room to operate. There are cracks there, there, there are fissures, but at the same time, I mean, you know, that's not going to take you very far. And I don't have an answer, obviously. If I did, I'd, I'd be at a much higher pay grade, you know, just yeah. to, Oh, go ahead, just, Scott. Just a comment on what you said, Vince. And then also a little bit on what Bob said is that, yeah, yeah. um, I mean, I, I think that the, I definitely used to live much more in that sort of like anarchist subculture that, you know, is always the same 15 people for 15 years and never really, you know, way, way more radical than now to be able to actually grow their, even their group. And, and I, a couple of years ago, I started asking myself this question, which I actually, you know, the, the, what I'll say about the Sanders campaign is I actually feel like in the, in the work they did and leading up to, Sanders primary run. Um, but I also see a lot of like effective organizers out outside of the electoral sphere do this is like, and, and I do this as an organizer with Rainforest Action Network. 
and and then also the local work, which is mostly climate work I do here in Northern California, is like I ask myself two questions. It's like, what can we do to be more effective? Like, how can we move on some of these issues in which we need to win on, right? And I'm just a couple of miles right now from the Chevron refinery in Richmond, California. It's like, you know, and that's that's a place where we have like poverty and racism as well as like fossil fuel capitalism, like sort of entrenched. And it's like a long fight, but like what, you know, the question that comes up is like, what can we do to be more effective? And then the second question is like, how do we grow the we of this movement? Like, how do we get past just like that same 15 people that like kind of hang out and make fun of, you know, have all the inside jokes on social media, whatever. And I think, I think those are like the two of the really more important things that we need to, as, as a left and as organizers and in these organizing spaces that we need to kind of be continually asking ourselves. We need to like start every conversation with those two questions, in my opinion. There's yeah. many other questions too, but definitely those are two of the more important ones in my head the last few years. No, I totally agree. I mean, I think one of the one of the people whose work has had a profound impact on me has been Jane McAlevey. When I read her book, No Shortcuts, and I would highly recommend if you guys haven't read it to read it, and if not, you know, definitely have her on the program or whatever. Um, I've read three of her books, actually. Oh, right on. Yeah, so yeah. probably Raising Expectations, uh, Shortcuts, and then Collective Bargain, the new one. Yeah. Yeah, I think she only has three. Yeah, there they're excellent. And I, I agree with her, uh, largely agree with her. And I think for me, reading her book, No Shortcuts was like, when I first read her book, no, no Shortcuts, the introduction alone was a summary of 11 years at that time of organizing, well, not really organizing work, activist work, mobilizing work, mobilizing largely with like-minded people who were, we just were trying to get off the couch who already agreed with us. And after that, uh, you know, and after Trump winning and after Standing Rock, that was right at the moment when, you know, Sergio and I had opened the community space here and, you know, determined that it was pretty clear that we needed to do some really deep work. And so to your point, Scott, about how to be effective, I do think that methods matter. I think that vision matters. Um, I also think that if we don't start with, you know, asking the question as you as you stated as well, is this campaign or project bringing new people into the mix? And is it allowing us to reach out and speak with people who don't already agree with us? Um, and I think McLevy's point about, you know, organizers spending 80% of their time listening and 20% of their time talking and organizers spending 20, 80% of their time with people who don't agree with them and 20% of their time with people who do agree with them, I think is really important stuff. And it seems clear to me that like, all of the internet culture and even some of the like real life culture that the left has built is not conducive to that. So like this kind of left that exists online, uh, the left that exists in some of this kind of like NGO, super woke, uh, weird sort of world like that. That's not, well, you know, when I'm thinking of people, I'm thinking of the working class people we've been organizing with here for the last four years. That's like the, the left that we're trying to build, you know, not the the folks who, you know, might call themselves that or any number of things. But I think that that stuff's really important. And I, for me, you spend too much of their time on Twitter. Yeah. Well, yeah, I was, uh, I, I reinvigorated my Twitter account for the, uh, for this program so we could promote it. And I started doing it like once every couple of days, posting something on there. And man, I, I lost a ton of respect for a lot of people that I thought I had respect for prior to being on Twitter once I saw how they behaved on Twitter. You know, talking about Jane's book and, and no shortcuts, it opens up with, there's a, even a, a table, you know, yep. breaking out advocacy, mobilizing and organizing. Yep. And we've talked about this a couple of time, times on our show. And I would say this is like a, a constant theme in my life lately. But like, that's actually a really important distinction about like how the left can work, particularly particularly in that sort of like, there's a professional left and, and definitely the professional left needs to read that because they actually don't understand how much they continue to perpetuate yep. the, the problematic parts of, 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 that, of that, you know, model or whatever. Like the, the professional left needs to think way more about organizing and less about how to be an advocate or how to mobilize the people who already agree with them. Yeah, and, and what, we, ter what turned me on to your guys' show was that last interview, not the last interview, but you did an interview with this cat who was talking about the difference between punditry and organizing. And it's something- jo Joshua Con Russell. Yeah, sharp guy, man. And I liked what he had to say and it jives a lot with the kind of conversations we have locally because we have like people coming in or- you know, people who want to get engaged with more stuff and they'll be like, who should I listen to? What should I check out? What should I read? And it's like, hey, man, 
stay away from that Twitter, stay away from a lot of these popular mm-hmm. YouTube programs because they're going to fuck you all up and lead you down a path that'll lead to more cynicism yeah. and more apathy or burnout, and that's not what we need. Well, Joshua, we- jo- uh, just to give a little shout out to Joshua, he actually was a, a regular talking head about organizing on the Michael Brooks show, and uh, they Michael Brooks passed away last year, and so they've actually been doing a tribute, a number of tribute shows, and he act- Joshua is actually on a panel with Jane McAlevey talking about organizing and punditry. Um, oh, cool. That that's people should totally check out. I mean, Joshua talked with us about very similar things. And so, but if you want to hear Jane and Josh, it's yeah. a good thing to listen to. And we've also, I think, um, we kind of have two purposes with a podcast. One is we do a lot of like radical history. I call it real radical history because I think uh, kind of this almost goes kind of back to the power thing. I think the left has a very romantic notion of its own history of struggle. And uh, God bless Howard Zinn. He was a, a mentor and I, I consider him a friend, but his work is so romantic that I think it, it's kind of given people the wrong idea about like the struggles we've gone through. So we do a lot of radical history where we kind of break stuff down. Like, you know, and I think those shows are really popular, but we've also like had on like great people. We haven't had Jane McAlevey on, but we've had, you know, like Lisa Fithian and Scott Crow and uh, Ananda Lee and just, you know, uh, Jake Conroy, um, Alex Riccio who has a, a podcast on labor, uh, people who do mutual aid, you know, so that's really, critical to get these voices out there because they're not going to be on the the hip snarky new york podcast they're going to be like people like us i think are going to have to 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 do that and just to kind of a shout out but the last one i think we dropped was some there are two professors at Collin college which is a a community college outside dallas who were just fired i mean we're talking about like they're not getting a paycheck they're not getting health care because they question this president's nuts i mean he's a piece of work they questioned his policies on COVID. Like he would not consult with them on COVID reopening. Uh, you know, uh, faculty council passed a resolution about, you know, going, not having person to person. He just ignored him. A faculty member died. He told him months later on the 22nd paragraph of an email. Um, he invoked their union membership when he fired them. So it's pretty bad stuff, you know, and, and we've done our best. I mean, we talked to him. We released a podcast. I wrote an article and Nobody seems to, you know, that's, to me, that's a solidarity issue. Like, you know, and, you know, when somebody in New York, if this had happened at like CCNY or CUNY, Brooklyn would have been on fire, you know? And so that kind of stuff really kind of pisses me off because I do think there's this, this, you know, kind of old boys network, old persons network, whatever you want to call it, you know, that's really myopic. And so we're trying to kind of fit into, I mean, there's a million podcasts, right? So how, you know, what, what can we do that's different? And I think you have the same, very similar ideas. It's like, let's, ex- let's bring these people out to let people know about them. Right. Because they're probably not going to get on some kind of fancy Brooklyn interview. Sure. But you know, these women, you know, at Colin college, Susan Jones and, and Audra Hayslip, they're out of work. They've lost their job for free speech issues and for union, you know, not even like really union organizing. They, they're just in the union yeah. and they, you know, and, and the president was very explicit in invoking this. He didn't try to hide it. And so, you know, when the left doesn't care, I mean, I've, I've like sent this out to people who are like well-known scholar. This is, you know, you're a professor, this can happen to you and nothing. The crickets, crickets, you know, and the people who do pick up on these kinds of things and help us out and support us are the act, are, you know, activists, organizers, mobilized, whatever you want to call them. It ain't the, the people with their, you know, tweed jackets and their, you know, what do you call it? You know, I don't dress that way as a professor. I've, I've got my Tom Waits look going today, so. <laughs> but uh, it ain't them. It's, it's people like Scott who, I mean, if I were, you know, uh, the, the great organizer, Kevin Donaher once said, Buzz, if uh, you're, you're walking past, you, you know, if your house is on fire and two people are walking past it and one is an activist and one is a postmodernist, who do you want? <laughs> you know? <laughs> and so if my house is on fire, I want Scott walking past it, not these Brooklyn people. Right on. You know, I hear you. I mean, I you know, if, if there's a cop with a, a baton, you know, no offense, man, you're gonna have to take the hit. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I I hear you, and it's one of the reasons why, even with the community center, one of the other things. Actually, I think you guys had a person on your program that we've been good friends with for a long time, uh, Graham Klumpner. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, yeah, yeah Sergio said yeah. he he said that he was yeah. on your program. We've known Graham since great. Jesus, I don't know. 2009 or 2010 but he's an old old friend yeah we've had a lot of good times with Graham uh both of official political stuff and non-official stuff but yeah Graham's a trip that's, that's I've done climate work with him in the last few couple of years he's good people yeah he's, yeah, one he's of my, great he's one of my favorites um 
I know I've taken a lot of your time already, so I, I don't want to take more of it. Uh, what are we at? About an hour? Hour and five. Yeah, so let, let's wrap up, and we could do it again another time. If you guys have kind of last thoughts, Bob, I definitely agree with what you just said. Like, one of the reasons why I've stayed in Michigan City, even after having been involved with national political movements and organizations, was because it allowed me to keep in touch with reality. So when 2015 rolled around, it was like, oh, yeah, like, of course, Donald Trump has a really good chance of winning the election. And then, of course, he wins and you go, oh, my God, my friends who live on the coast, my friends who are out of Brooklyn or other areas, I don't mean to pick on your area, Scott, or like the Bay Area or some of these other places like, man, I've been really surprised at how out of touch people have been. One of the positive things I think that might come from the last six months or 11 months now um, could be developing more of these independent media outlets in the Midwest and the Rust Belt and other places, Great Plains region in the South, and like communities and areas and regions where people do not hear from each other. And then if we could start networking with each other, all the better. So in other words, I was going to send you guys an email after this and just ask, like, who do you guys know in the Midwest that we need to connect with? You know, like those kind of things, I think, are the kind of things that I hope to get out of this. In other words, I enjoy talking with you guys. But I hope that like this leads to like, hey, who do you know, Bob, in Ohio that we know in eastern Indiana that we could put in touch with each other so they could start working together and connect their projects like that's the kind of shit that we're most interested yeah. in. Well, and we'll do the same. I mean, I, you know, hopefully we'll we'd like to, you know, you'll want I mean, you're a you know, you're a, a Rust Belt guy like I am, uh, you, you know, anti-war vets. That's like, you know, I've, I've some of my favorite people and you're a Paisan. You know, even if you're even if you're from Naples, <laughs> you know, uh, yeah, you've heard the old phrase, right? Afanabla. I'm sure you've heard that I was, before. That's funny that we, <laughs> Serge and I, were just watching a show where the gentleman used the phrase two nights ago. Afanabla. Yeah. yeah. So being Sicilian, I heard that a lot. Afanabla. Afanabla. You know? <laughs> yeah, we're we're definitely in interest. What are I would I would say like a, a big theme. I mean, we have a, a couple of themes for for our show, but like definitely like uplifting organizing and definitely like uplifting organizers in places that are not the Brooklyn bubble, the DC bubble or the, or the Bay area. Bubble. I mean, we have talked to plenty of people in all three of those places, but, or, and then like kind of you pointed out is like, there's also real organizing going on in those places, which also doesn't get talked about that much. Like I got, I got friends who are in DC now who are like really fighting the good fight. And sometimes they're fighting the fight around the impeachment trial. And sometimes they're fighting the fight around like gentrification in some of those neighborhoods in DC, same for the Bay. Yep. And so, so like, Definitely the, one of our themes of our shows is the lift up organizing and, and the importance of it. And, you know, as a, as a organizer for 20 years and a director of an org, or a director of organizing at a environmental organization, I feel like it's an under-recognized profession or an under-recognized vocation. So it needs to, it needs to happen. <laughs> Agreed. I couldn't agree more. Bob, do you have any, any parting words for us? Uh, thank you. Uh, this was great. I really enjoyed it. And hopefully, you know, you can join us before too long and we can continue and uh, get a lot more out of you this time than 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 me. So no, let's keep uh, it going. I, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, let's keep it going. And when and when COVID's over, let's take a drive out to Youngstown and meet up for some drinks or vice versa. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Or just meet in Chicago, whatever. Yeah. I mean, any. I love the area. I get the hell out of here. So cool, man. Let's do yeah. it. Scott, thanks for your time, man. I appreciate it's, it. It's been, it's been great talking. Cool. Take care, guys. Hey, thank you for watching and listening. If you think this program is worth a pack of cigarettes or a cheeseburger, you could become a Patreon for as little as $3 a month. The link is available at our website, parkmedia.org. That's P-A-R-C media.org. Make sure to subscribe to our YouTube channel below. Also, you could find us on Instagram at parkmedia, Facebook at politics, art, roots, culture, and you could find me on Twitter at Vince Emanuele.